Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Intermission podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and in this show we discuss cars and films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. And my guest this episode is motoring journalist and presenter Henry Catchpole. Henry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Delighted to be on it. We start every intermission podcast with one question, which is, what is your favourite movie or TV car of all time? Well, it's it's a tricky one, this isn't it? It would be lovely to pick something obscure, and I was, I was thinking about this last night, and I'm, I'm going to have to go really pretty obvious and go a Silver Birch DB5 from, from Bond, but with a slight caveat here, because I think if I had just sort of, you know, I, I grew up obviously watching Bond films and loving them and you love all the gadgets. And I, I think if you, if you didn't know that it had, had got to you when you were younger, you did when it was unveiled in Skyfall. Daniel Craig and M and up goes the garage door and there it is. And I, I just, you know, sort of shivers down the spine. Oh, there it is. Brilliant. Fantastic. Excellent. And at that point, you sort of you realize how badly you, you actually sort of love that car. And the other, the other reason for that is that I was lucky enough to drive the stunt car for No Time to Die. And it was just one of the most fun cars I've, I've driven in, in a long time. So this was the, the sort of carbon fiber bodied uh, thousand kilos world rallycross underpinnings and stuff from Paragraph. But it looks absolutely, if you just sort of, you walk past on the street and sort of, you know, didn't particularly look through the windows then you 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 would think that it was was just a, a db5 and it was so much fun to drive that's that's what you want what they want to portray fairly obviously because it's a stunt car that's that's what you want the car to be when i saw the videos of that stunt car being driven around the uh, stowe circuit at silverstone i thought if you had a big enough check and you went to aston martin and said i don't care about the continuation cars with all the gadgets can you build me one of those, please? It's, um, I, I was built, uh, was it nine of them or something like that, I think? Um, so, I mean, they've got to be quite a few kicking around. I'm sure somebody must have must have got one somewhere, um, I'd have thought. Uh, yeah, it would be great fun to do. I subsequently obviously drove the, the, the continuation uh, Goldfinger DB5 as well, which was, was lovely, actually. And sort of, I drove a, a standard original db5 on the same day as i drove the stunt car and it, it does feel like a quite a big heavy pretty sort of wallowy thing i'm mean, lovely sort of lovely engine and sort of but not something that bond would really want to chuck around in the way that he he does um i mean he'd fall out of those seats apart from anything else because he's sort of this lovely shiny leather and just sort of disappear off sort of camera come back into camera again and it was <laughs> wedging himself against the, the b pillar as he goes around corners exactly yeah yeah absolutely but i drove that car it was rather nice. I had the chance. I drove it from um, the golf club, Stoke Park Golf Club, back up to Newport Pagnell, and we couldn't really do any filming, particularly on the way. So it was just a sort of blast across country. And actually, to, and that rarely happens, actually, that you get time to just just drive a car on roads that you know pretty well. And it was it was lovely, although it was a sort of a bit of a, a big bust. Um, it was it was really good good fun. You can surprisingly quick as well. You could hustle it, and I think it, it surprised quite a lot of people what they must have thought seeing that car. <laughs> um, it was uh, yeah, being playing at being Bond for uh, an hour or so was great. What got you started in cars? Was it watching Bond films as a kid, or were there other influences when you were young? Oh, it was my parents, undoubtedly. They they met uh, through the MG Car Club, in fact. So I sort of grew up around MGs. And 
my mother still has in barn sadly it hasn't moved well since i've been alive but uh, an old mgtf 1500 which i remember sitting in so i used to go and let myself into that and sit there amongst all the cobwebs and pretend i was i was driving it but uh, I, I was yes brought up around cars and i remember walking in watching my parents watching the grand prix and sort of asking who's winning and they'd say ferrari and i'd say which ones are those and they'd say the red ones and because red was my favorite color my small boys um that they then became my my cars as it were and and yeah i used to grow up collecting model ferraris i still got a huge collection of model ferraris now up in the loft and um yeah it was there from from day one really I, i i always loved cars where did the progression then from young fan to car writer in evo come from was it something that you always sort of progressed towards or was it just an opportunity that came along i remember being sort of sixth form at school i suppose it was been i'd been first i'd been lower sixth at school and my best friend at school uh chap called bruce frost his father was going to buy or looking at buying a maserati 3200 gt and of course, that was on the first cover of, of Evo. And I, I bought car magazines for it. Obviously, as I say, you know, I've been to Goodwood lots and loved it all. Fantasized about being a, a racing driver. Quite clearly, I hadn't been put in a cart sort of um, at the age of two or whatever. So it wasn't wasn't really going to happen um, on a professional level. So I, I don't know what I was going to do. But then I pinched this copy of Evo and read it. And I'd, as I said, I'd read sort of all the, I still have the first copy of Top Gear magazine somewhere. So, and all the, all those sort of things I, I read, but this was to me really different. And it just, uh, you know, you said speaks to you or whatever, but the, the writing, the, the photos, the, everything, I thought, this is what I want to do. And not for other magazines. I want to work for Evo. That, that is, that's got to be the goal. It's sort of then, I, I don't know. I, I suppose I was fairly, single-minded no i wasn't really very single-minded because i went off to university and read art history and philosophy so and then i nearly joined the army and but i sort of i'd done bits of work experience along the way and i'd entered the odd writing competition so the daily telegraph used to do a, a young motoring journalist competition and i sort of i certainly didn't win it but i think i got told i was i was shortlisted as a finalist which probably meant the five of us that had actually bothered to send something in had all been sort of given a pat on the back but i i, I leveraged that to my yeah. well writing emails to people trying to get uh work experience and stuff so yeah and i, I did i managed to crowbar cars into my uh, degree as well because i did my dissertation on the bmw art cars and yeah i did bits of work experience at autocar and evo did a week each there famously at autocar which is a whole other story but <laughs> and when I came out of um, university, I was I say I, I thought about joining the army, then decided not to do that, and was sort of thinking, right, well, I didn't have a gap year before I went to university. Perhaps I'll have a gap year and see if I can make motoring journalism work somehow. And sent a sort of speculative email to Peter Tomlin saying if I could come and do any other work experience, that would be great. And I was going climbing in the Peak District with my cousin, and I was driving up the M1 in my Mini and thought, right, I'm going to divert via uh, Williston where Evo is based um, because in my mind that was just a short trip off the motorway. And sort of just literally went in cold cool and sort of thought I'll give them my CV and sort of portfolio of bits and bobs I've written. And um, walked in and they said, oh, hi, nice to see you. And sort of and said, well, we're actually, we are a bit thin on the ground at the moment because it was just at the point where Dickie was going freelance and it was all a bit sort of in, in flux. And so, yes, I sort of went off to Italy for a month, came back and lived out of B&Bs and worked at Evo, sort of doing work experience for one month, which became three months. And 
I never never left. So they eventually caved in and sort of <laughs> decided that it was sort of I wasn't too much of a nuisance, and they actually liked having somebody to make all the tea. So um, quite literally as well, people sort of say, "What got you the job?" And I I guarantee it wasn't sort of you know my ability to you know, drift a car or um, string a sentence together. It was the fact that on deadline I would happily stand up and say, "Who'd like a cup of tea?" And oh yeah, absolutely, because everybody wants a cup of tea, and you do all the jobs that nobody else wants to do. So. <laughs> What's it like walking into the Evo office as this green, young, ambitious writer and having both that history and the people there and all of the, I guess, the expectation that you must have going in? It was just incredibly exciting. I can still remember the feeling sort of certainly the, the first time I went there on work experience and sat at a desk. I have no idea what I did for five days, to be honest. I remember, I, no, I remember what I'd done the last day because I went out on a photo shoot with Andy Morgan um, and Dickie. But I think the first four days, the sort of most exciting car I went in was a Citroen C5. And we went to Tesco and back at lunchtime. And that was, that was it. But I, I, I just couldn't care because, you know, over in the corner was John Barker and there was Jethro. And it, it just sort of, um, Harry was somewhere downstairs doing whatever Harry did. And, and that just the whole way through. And I think the lovely thing was that when I joined, they didn't expect me to say jump into a supercar or be sort of actually be particularly useful really for you know start with because they wanted somebody that they as they're done with Jethro train up and they you would start off in the Clio and work your way up and and I did say did the jobs that people other people didn't want to do like working the timing gear um, so we get to a circus and nobody wants to work the ancient laptop that they don't really understand anyway and sort of this timing gear that's a bit recalcitrant and gaffer taping stuff to roofs and things so and then go and sit in the passenger seat which again is not for certainly not for everybody but i i loved it because you could just soak up so much information about sort of certainly the from a driving perspective you, know, you sit next to john or dickie or jethro and see how they each actually in quite different ways make their way around a track all equally breathtakingly quickly and incredibly impressively as well and i'm, and I'm blowing smoke up <laughs> But I still think their ability to jump from car to car to car, sort of, you, know, you might have a dozen cars on a day, and John would be jumping out of one into another, and it, you know, go from four wheel drive to rear wheel drive to front wheel drive to all these things, and it just seemed to get it. And you'd probably only have, you know, three laps maybe to to get a lap time, and they just seemed to be able to to do it, and and also then sort of on the last lap, you know, hold some ridiculous drift around the last corner on the west circuit, and it was. Thankfully, I didn't get car sick, so I could just sit there and, and literally just try and be a sponge and take it all in. And then the same on the writing side, in terms of you know, start out writing news briefs, so little 60-word things, and Peter would say, just write, don't be too creative because these have to be something that you could show to anybody and they would get the gist of the story. So that's fine, you do that. And you start on your small driven and then gradually work your way up and eventually end up writing car of the year <laughs> in all its all its monstrous glory it always seems like the short straw for whoever actually has to write the car of the year feature because even just as a reader i'm there sort of page after page after page thinking you've got to get people's views on on the day make notes collate it all it just seems like a, a real labor of love at the end of a year I was delighted to be asked, fairly obviously, because I was still quite young in my time at Evo. 2007 was the first time I wrote Evo Car of the Year. So I'd been, it was only really three years that I'd been there when I first wrote it, which seems 
crazy really but i think harry was didn't want to pay a freelancer so and i was the only one available so (laughs) that was sort of how we did it and stepping into the shoes of peter tomlin's early e-coaches i was talking to him the other day actually about um the test if you remember that from issue 22 um which again was a massive great sort of piece of work and but just beautifully written and so well observed and all the characters and it's quite different to actually just writing about cars because you had to capture all the color and the atmosphere and quotes and things like that and it, it did seem like a massively daunting task and i remember just i'd sit there for two weeks trying to collate all the stuff that I'd collected and actually you work out in the end that you take far too many notes the first time and far too many quotes and you just end up trying to transcribe far too much and really you do remember so much anyway so you just want little snippets that you can drop in here and there and then you make up stuff um, from quotes that give them to people because you, you remember it well enough anyway and it's uh, I remember making up a quote once for Harry and he was editor at the time, so he really should have read it before it went out to press. But um, he came sort of wandering through about halfway through the next month, I think, and sort of said, um, I don't remember saying this. <laughs> no, you didn't, Harry. <laughs> but I was just saying, if you were reading it, clearly you were. So. <laughs> I, I love doing it, but I don't, I, yeah, I don't miss it. I'm so pleased to have done it, but I don't envy you know, Adam Towers doing it these days and I, I know the sort of the what he's going through and the blood, sweat and tears you have to pour into it and it is lovely to have done it but to have done it and not to have to do it <laughs> one of the things that always stands out with evo is obviously the quality of the writing what was it like developing as a writer and finding your voice within that group of people it's tricky i think it certainly was something it doesn't it doesn't come easily and i think the i would always talk to other people and you read the nice thing is you get to read the whole of the magazine every month, or I certainly did in the early days. So because you're proofreading it um, on deadline and it's strange because you, when you proofread something, obviously you have to read it in quite a different way because you're looking out for all the mistakes. You can't skim stuff. So you notice how somebody writes something and how the different, how you know, everybody um, writes things um, differently. And like anything, I think it's just practice really uh, at the end of the day. And you, you've, you work out what you like from other people's writing. And I always say this to people, if people say, you know, how do I get into motion journalism? What can I do to improve? And I just say, read lots and read critically as well. Don't just think about what you like. Why do you like this book or not that book, this article, not that article. And, and you pick up little things along the way and you try not to superimpose them onto your own writing, but, inevitably sort of and it doesn't obviously have to be car writing you know, i love pg woodhouse i grew up reading a lot of that and i just you know it's, it's, his tone of phrase and use of language is pretty much unmatched i think but equally you can read a read jack reacher read lee child and you know, his ability to create a page turner is um or ian fleming like we're talking you know, his very short sentences and you can sometimes find that if you are reading something at the time it'll seep into what you're what you're writing i, I think it is just practice and you have to get comfortable with with your own voice and, and, and find it really and it's it's um don't try and force it but yeah the nice thing with evo was that it was some magazines have very much have a house style and evo never had that it was they always wanted the the character of the writer to come through in the story so you could just you didn't have to try and be somebody you weren't you just had to be yourself really and then um, and i think if you try to be somebody you're not then it it's very obvious as well so i um, mean it's actually harder to write That also came across as well with the sort of features that people did in Evo. I have this vision of of a 
conference table and a big pitch meeting and people taking their particular fancies and their particular interests into that meeting is is that what it was like would you sort of go in and say this is what i'm passionate about this is what i want to cover what do you think yeah to some extent you'd sort of we'd i suppose think of our own stories but i think sometimes it is as you say it's just an approach to how you write it so we could you know two different people could go off with the same cars to the same piece of road in scotland and perhaps i might talk more about the the landscape and the road itself because that's what i you know is, is a big part of what i i like about things where somebody else um you know john barker was always fabulous at describing um the sort of the technical side of the, the car and the, the sort of the mechanical detail of, of things like that so i think it came over like that certainly things like the drive stories i tended to make if not my my own then sort of there were things i all stuck my hand up for and would try to organize as well because they take a lot of organizing so if you don't organize them then they don't don't happen fairly obviously so yeah i think it was obviously you didn't always get to drive the car that you wanted to drive because you might be off doing something else and it was just a case of it was there was still a certain obviously amount of pecking order in the office and, and i very much ranked at the bottom of that pecking order for for some time and i think still in the readers minds as well i'm, I'm still the t-boy because i was pretty much last to last to join from from that crew and it's very odd going back to car year now i've just it's the next issue of evo uh, coming out and then um, going back on a test and we had john barker and Richard Meaden and Andy Morgan and Stu Gallagher and stuff there now and I despite having gone off and done my own thing I come back and I can't help but feel like you know I should just be sort of warming the car up for other people to go and actually test or something. So going back to sort of the mid 2000s what was video like in the Evo office how was it seen as part of the offering at the time? I don't think it was really it was very strange I mean we had I think I must have been one of the last people to go into motoring journalism. I went into it just to write for a magazine. There, w- there wasn't really, there was evo.co.uk, but I can't really remember us doing much with it, certainly in, at the start. Then that sort of obviously grew and, and gradually sort of bits and bobs of video came along. But it, it and initially I, I hated the idea. I really did because there was there was television out there and that was this was just so otherworldly. It wasn't something you ever. I didn't go into Evo thinking, oh, one day I might be able to present on Top Gear because it just didn't. It, it wasn't. It just wasn't an option. I remember sort of not. I suppose with most people as well, sort of going on camera is a very odd thing, and I didn't didn't really like it. I have to say, it, it was just you. You feel awkward and uncomfortable, and you don't really like what you say, let alone the sound of your own voice, and. The other thing was, it, it, because it all started out at a sort of quite a low level, it, it didn't, I think it's fair to say, it didn't really seem to match the magazine. So Evo is known for its photography. I loved the photography side of it. I sort of had uh, wild dreams that I could do both words and photos right back at the beginning, but that was fairly obviously a stupid idea. And so I stuck to the one where I could actually drive the cars. But I always took a huge interest in the photos. So, you know, it was Andy or Gus or... Dave Shep or Dean or Aston or whoever, I, I would always be kind of looking over their shoulder and, and hopefully suggest some things as well. So I like to think I had a vague eye for a shot or sort of at least be able to sort of think, well, this would work with the story and what I want to say. So the, the magazine format of words and pictures, I always thought, you know, they, they really should go together. That's when the articles work 
work the best is um, when you're describing things and they're shown in the, the photos um, or you don't have to describe things too much because they're shown in the photos and it all matches up and actually it's not a huge leap then to go from that to a to a video or a film I suppose not that I think I realized that at the time probably but I just knew that there wasn't the sort of, there wasn't the match up between the magazine and the video initially and that's and I didn't really want to have anything to do with it but then I started watching more things i think outside of automotive as well and sort of thought actually we could do some really cool stuff here. you know we've got access to these cars and i remember things like um there was a film called uh, life cycles um which was a mountain biking movie and um, go and look it up sort of um because it's it's, it's a, there's a trailer i think full films probably on youtube now because it's sufficiently old there's a trailer on that and i just remember looking at the visual of this and think this is this is extraordinary and the same with the skiing videos and, and other stuff and there seems to be the extreme sports stuff that really i don't know they they just seem to have things that are a much higher level than anything really we were doing apart from obviously some of the, the top gear stuff and the, the big races and things that started coming along and then sam riley joined evo and that was really the that was the the key i think because he got it or he and i just thought with thinking clearly along the same lines and we didn't get to do it initially but it i thought yes this this is somebody that has seen what i've seen and thinks we can can do this and it, it went from there really given that you at the time were a writer are you the sort of writer who will sort of write in one draft and and that's it or are you a meticulous editor of, of your work <laughs> uh i'm definitely an, an editor i'd love to say they're very few times when you sit down and it just all flows and it's exactly what you want it's lovely when it does but sadly it doesn't happen very often and again i think i say to people that when you're starting out writing you've got to remember that somebody said once that writing starts with the first edit and it's it's quite true really you don't have to show anybody your first draft of anything so you get it down and you know, by most edits you go along, but when you read it back through, that sort of you know, leave it for if you can. And it's the nice thing about working on a monthly. Um, used to be the fact you could just you know, leave it for a day or so and then come back to it and actually you sort of tweak things here or there. I think, well, that I could have phrased that much better, or that you know, analogy would work nicely there, or that just doesn't work at all. What on earth was I thinking? It's sort of so convoluted. And you tighten it all up, and you have to get quite good at being very self-critical, I suppose. And it's the same, same really with video, sort of, if not more so, actually. Are you quite a scripter then when it comes to video? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think something I, something I worked out very early on was that if, if somebody gave me a script and said, right, here you are, or if I wrote a script and sort of thought, right, this is what I've, you know, this is the sentence I'm going to say first, I was terrible. And I still think of, probably am because occasionally just occasionally i'll write down something think this would be a really good intro but i've got to say it like this and my word i find it difficult to kind of yeah you can practically see the cogs wearing behind my eyes as i try and say it and it looks unnatural and so because i'm come from a journalist background the thing is that you would often you go on a launch and i wouldn't have driven the car before and to me i couldn't I, I, I wouldn't prejudge a car. I wouldn't write the road test before I went on the launch. So why I might think I know what the car was going to be like, but I wouldn't know. And I also found that if you try to pigeonhole a car or think, right, I'm definitely going to talk about this. 
you would time you know you're not focusing on what you thought you should say rather than noticing the things that actually were important about a car or would make a better video or you try and you, you come up with a lovely introduction and you get there and it's it's raining so you can't do that or it's dark or the road you wanted to use is shut and this happens all the time so i think it's best to go somewhere with a plan but be very flexible with that plan so so most recent example of that is is aerial nomad r which i'd never driven before and i had an idea for what i wanted to do with it because i knew it was a sort of tarmac rally cars have been described to me so i thought oh it'd be good down some of the sort of the bumpier roads that we wouldn't normally use sort of you know it's got lots of suspension travel that sort of looks like it would be really good and i drove it and within you know very quickly it's, it's fairly obviously it's, it's a very smooth road car so all the locations that we'd scattered beforehand straight out the window we had to replan it go somewhere completely different and you know you tear up the things you thought you knew about it in your head and and off you go again and you have to you know make it all up on the the spot which sounds terrible but it's and i think you just if you react to the car and obviously i think about it whilst i'm there in the same way i would have done when i was writing a you know you'd think about what you were going to write for the the driven feature and i then i'm sure charlie um rose who i with kind of hates me for it but i think he's got used to it now because i would always then go back and edit my pieces to camera and then fit it in and, and you can rely on voiceover which then gives me the time to kind of make sure i've really nailed it with a car and the verdict i'm giving um and i haven't just said something at the time that's clearly you know later on you know trying to do the pieces to camera as late in the day as possible to give me as much time to you know work out what i want to say and, and get used to the car and make sure i'm making the right decisions and saying the right things but not always the always the way so yeah, that it takes quite a lot of editing after the fact, and I tend to put most of the work in there for after the event. Just occasionally, we put a lot of work in beforehand, and it really, really pays off. I think the the RS Fix film we did at the end of last year was sort of something where I'd, I'd planned quite a lot about, so at least the route we were going to take and stuff. But even then, you know, it snowed in the in Death Valley. <laughs> <laughs> you can't you know, the piece of camera i had planned for there clearly you know, wasn't, wasn't going to fit so you just have to think on your feet and, and it would have been disastrous to sort of you know that's an occasion where you think well i could have just thought well this doesn't fit with the script that i had or the not script but the sort of the idea i had for talking about the hvac controls in the car at this point so we'll just ignore it because it didn't i mean that would have been the the, the stupidest decision ever because clearly the sort of the, pretty much the best thing in that whole film was the fact that we were in Death Valley and we had a drone shot going across a snowy desert. So, um, yeah, it's, I think you have to be very flexible and scripting doesn't, doesn't work for, for me to that extent. I think it was the RS6 video when I was watching it. Because of the podcast, obviously, I watched some things more sort of critically and I'm not trying to unpick them, but when you, I think when you were sat placing chocolate bars around various bits of the interior <laughs> and I was, I was sitting there as i was just watching it thinking this isn't something that you've planned do you just go through and just shoot thoughts all day and then just in the end you just kind of pick them all out no i think so that was because we were the idea was introducing the rs6 to america because they hadn't they'd obviously they'd had the saloon version there before but not the, the avant so Yes, we, we, I tried to think beforehand of, of various things that might work, like obviously sort of going around a, a 
Walmart, I think it was, um, we went to, and um, which we nearly got chucked out of by the security who worked out we were actually filming in there. And uh, it's two big sort of, you know, it's <laughs> big um, failed quarterbacks that turns up and um, says, what, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, we're just... Um, we're making a, a student film that kind of, um, no, oh, sorry, you're not allowed to do that over here. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Oh, we could, <laughs> UK loves it when we do this sort of stuff. <laughs> Things like that. No, the chocolate bars nearly didn't make it in, actually, because that was an idea that I thought was great and Charlie thought was rubbish. So <laughs> he thought it was just going to be crowbarring in, but I think it was sort of, the idea, I think, originally was to just dot it throughout the film so that they would, but then we, yeah, that's one of those situations where you, you sort of you film something and then think and to look afterwards and decide whether really it was such a good idea or not. When you're developing a concept, do you look beyond just that first level? And I'm thinking, for example, things like when you did the uh, Bugatti Chiron walk around and in the middle of the film, there was actually more of the Bugatti history than other people that would have just flown in, gone to the nice chateau, looked round the car and then sort of gone. Do you always sort of look for that extra story or that extra step that ties the whole narrative together? Yes, yes. I think that um, I like doing that because I think it makes it more of a complete film. So I, I, like, the, I like the idea that you should come away perhaps learning something from the film Um and I suppose I, I looked at the sort of the Top Gear in the past and things that they did really well and worked out what Clarkson do incredibly well because like him all those and whatever, you know, he's done <clears throat> some fantastic stuff and he his work ethic over things you realise is is fantastic and, and I love a lot of the films that he's done not about cars. And again, I think a lot of the time frequently he's so interesting about things that weren't about perhaps specifically the car that the film was about um, or the history of the place or whatever. And I, I just, I always liked that sort of thing and thought it, it really added to a film. So I always tried to bring something else in if I could, because again, I think it, um, I like the idea that people that don't necessarily or might be vaguely interested in the car, but people that not necessarily are interested in the car could watch the film and go, oh, that's, that was fun. I enjoyed that. That was that was entertaining sort of for, for more than just, you know, hardcore road testing purposes and stuff like that. So I'm trying to do that. It's not always easier. It's the stuff that certainly takes the, takes the time. So let's talk about some of the more recent films because you mentioned Charlie earlier and there seems to be a real sort of collaboration between your writing and presenting, but also his visuals and the way that the two kind of come together to create something that's much sort of bigger than the, the sum of its parts. Let's take one that we mentioned recently, the um, Lamborghini Diablo film. Where does the creative journey start with that? And what is the kind of the back and forth between you two? So generally, I will find the car or suggest the car or it's just an obvious sort of launch that we're going on and then we'll try and think the next thing is obviously the location if we have a choice which a lot of the time we don't so it might be with that case you know where can an owner get to or where can we you know in, in certainly this year it's been a case of having last down hotels so we have to <laughs> work locate locations nearer to us fairly hard um and locations as well for filming are not necessarily the well the they obviously have to be a good road for driving, but they've got to primarily be a road that you can film on. So that's all sorts of things come into that. And sort of to the extent of 
you can have a lovely long stretch of road. If there's nowhere for me to turn around for a stretch of five miles, it's completely pointless because, well, we can't wait that long to sort of for me to go backwards and forwards between between shots and things like that. So daft things like that that you have to come in quite early in the planning and actually can be quite constricting. I'll sometimes come up with a, an intro around the car and thinking, okay, this would be cool or sort of an idea I've got from somewhere else. And then Charlie will say, you must be joking, but frequently doesn't now. He's, he's, you know, he's exceptionally talented. And I just going off subject as well. I've, I've always been hugely, I suppose I've tried to make sure that I work with people that are going to make me, make me look good because it is, it is such a collaborative process. It's sort of, I mean, I'm the one that ends up in front of the camera, but I rely so much, obviously, on you know Sam or Charlie or um, whoever that I've worked with and their their talent to turn a crazy idea. Sometimes, sort of saying, "Oh, wouldn't that shot be great if we do that?" and then rely on the fact that we understand each other well enough, certainly over time, to be able to say, "Yes, that will work," or "No, that." won't still and i try not to ask sort of too much of them in terms of i realize what's what's actually physically possible but yeah i mean the diablo full credit charlie because that was something that came out of the script that i wrote afterwards there was a line about poster on a um, bedroom wall and he he ran with that and that was you know sometimes it's my idea that was i'm you know full credit to him and he got the, the poster made up and dressed up his childhood bedroom i think to to look like that so yeah, it's it's great. And and it's lovely as well seeing because I hopefully I think he's enjoyed the fact that I don't like settling for just doing something we've done before or we want to try and make every video better than the last, which isn't always possible, but sort of try and put something different into it and it's it's lovely when you know you've got somebody else there that, that wants the same thing and and that you're both trying both trying your hardest to make it um as, as good as possible and it's nice seeing the edits as well sometimes there'll be stuff in there that i hadn't expected and always used a particular effect or something and the first time you see it you think that's that's fun that's fantastic and it will be little things as well that perhaps nobody else will notice but you just sort of say oh i love the way you did that or you know how they've they've worked around something that hasn't actually really worked on the day but they've covered it up and, and made it actually look pretty special or something one thing that i guess a lot of people probably don't realize so much with car fiction films because there's probably a perception amongst lots of people that YouTube films are quick compared to TV or, or whatever. For something like the Nomad film, where you've got that opening sequence with the shadows and the lights, you've got timeout filming, you've got editing, what's that whole process take in terms of time between everybody involved? So it was, I'm trying to think how long that took us, it was a day and a half of filming in the end, that um, by the time we all got down there, picked the car up, went to the wrong sort of road, came back to the right sort of road, rejigged everything. Um, there were two, so it was um, Glenn and Charlie both shooting on that. And again, we sort of Charlie got the bought the smoke grenades for the smoke before that. So it was I mean, it was a long first day because we were up till goodness knows what time of night doing uh, the opening sequence stuff and it was and then the second day and of course you've got to hope that continuity works out with all that sort of thing so that's yes yeah, then a half of filming which is pretty much certainly this time of year that's for a, for a bigger film that's about standard but long days and <laughs> and then editing it can 
take up to a week probably for Charlie to pull all that together sort of in amongst other things because obviously he's not just solely working on that because we have other things to do and stuff but yeah it, it takes quite a, a long time and obviously I have to I suppose when we get back he'll then send me my pieces to camera um, so I can see what I said in the car and what needs to be cut out um, or kept or whatever repeated or whatever and then I quite like it if so the intro to that we we had the idea for sort of what it was going to look like visually, but quite how it was going to work in terms of tying it into the rest of the film. And we'd done obviously the Lamborghini just before that. And that didn't have any voiceover at the start of the film. It was just because we figured that it was, that's just going to spoil it to be honest. It was very obvious. And if you can, if you can show, don't tell, as they say on the uh, Mark says, then you should. So that's fine. People don't need to hear my voice any more than necessary. So that it worked perfectly well without that. Great with the Nomad R, it needed something just to kind of bring it together and make you realize why, what you were trying to say about the car and why you were showing it in the dark and the rest of the film was going to be in the light sort of thing. So, um, and make it more than just cool, slow-mo smoke stuff. So yeah, but it's nice because I then I could Charlie put all that together and then I wrote the voiceover to go with it because it's, again, you don't want me writing two minutes of voiceover trying to describe something when actually Visually, it's going to be much nicer in a 20-second segment um, at the beginning. Moving away from the work that you do and, and the videos that you create onto other people's, you're a well-known rally fan. <laughs> There's been a bit of discussion recently about the, the WRC coverage, and I think you and I are probably both of an age where we remember Tony Mason in a flat cap every night during whatever rally happened to be on at the time. What do you think is the shortcoming with the WRC coverage. And if you were controller of the WRC and what would you do to, to change that coverage? I actually think it's very good. <laughs> so I have a WRC plus subscription, which I, I pay for. And I think given all the constraints around it, um, and it's, it's fascinating going back and watching one of the channels I was going to mention was um, VHS rallies, which no doubt you've watched and it's fantastic. Loads of all the old push and stuff like that. But you, you realize how good we've got it these days with the fact that I can log on during a, a weekend and you see the onboards and obviously they rely more on onboards at the start of the stage. And then they have the set cameras at the end. But the fact that you can watch every single stage live is brilliant because it sort of seems a bit like you can have it going on throughout the weekend and you can leave it there and you can dip in and out and you sort of watch the the maps and things and yes i would like some of the camera angles within the cars to be better but i think they're they're getting there they're better now and you just want to be able to see the the drivers but obviously exposing for inside and outside the car is is tricky so that's difficult i hate the toyota one that they they have which always seems to be angled in towards the nose of the car rather than just pointing straight ahead. And it's obviously quite a wide angle camera and it's horrible because the first time you jump to an onboard and Elvin will tip it into a corner and you think he's spun because the angle of this car seems to be completely irrecoverable from, from that angle. And then you you remember that it's the camera angle and not the, anyway, there we go. But no, I I think it's, they do a, a fantastic job and obviously you still get all the stage end interviews which um, you know what other sport can you sort of you know shove a microphone in you know somebody who's just come out of the heat about you know there's no pr person there to tell them to don't say that or you know this is the policy um uh, that we're taking on this sort of incident in there so you get some you know you find managers have to apologize probably more than other people because um 
yeah, it's, it's, it provides really good television. So I think, yeah, actually we've probably got it better than almost we, we ever have sort of the, if anything, it's probably more down to the, the rallies themselves now, rather than a lot of the footage that we're getting. So I think that's where you perhaps lack the, the variety of, you know, the old, um, network queue or RIC sort of traveling all over the country and having this sort of, you know, it would be great, wouldn't it, to have sort of, uh, we've just done, we can say we've got the GR Yaris going out soon and we went to Margham Park at the end of that film and Chatsworth and things like that. It's, um, he said that would be great, wouldn't it, to sort of go around all, all of those more and sort of really bring rallying back to back to the people as well so you don't have to go and march out into the middle of a forest, which I which I love. I, you know, I think it's, it's all part of the adventure and stuff, but I get that it's not it's not for everybody especially some of the longer rallies as well, the old safari rallies that would be immensely long days and cars with sort of that much suspension traveling. <laughs> exactly. And I think it's, yeah, it's, it's difficult, isn't it, perhaps to get the adventure over to, to people. But um, I, I think probably given the budget that they've got with WRC, they do a, a really good job. And I suspect it's just a case of if it was a... It is still a, a pretty niche motorsport, isn't it? So, um, sadly, much as I would like it not to be, um, so I think given more more budget, um, it would be it would be fascinating to do a sort of drive to survive style documentary in rallying because I think it would just it would flabbergast people, you know, what the the drivers go through on a daily basis throughout a rally, and that would perhaps open it up more, and they'd realise the the effort that goes in and the fact they're up at all hours and, and, and also the lovely bits in between stages that you get and the fact that, you know, I always love the fact that fine Formula One drivers and stuff are probably kept away from each other largely in a big paddock and they can't be seen to sort of, but drivers on a rally, you know, you, you have a big regroup and you stand around chatting. You might be there for an hour, just sitting on the, sitting on the road, you know, nothing else to do other than flick through your phone or talk to, and probably in the middle of nowhere anyway, so you've got a phone signal particularly anyway to, check instagram um so once you've done any tire pressures and stuff it's yeah you there's a greater camaraderie because you're not competing against other drivers directly on a stage you can i think you don't need to be so aggressive to other drivers or for yes they're all, they're always mind games and it's i think it's often the co-drivers to be honest that play more mind games sort of with each other and sort of <laughs> they bear the, the brunt of that but uh yeah it's um it's a fascinating sport alone I love it. The last time I went to Rally GB, there was something about, as a spectator, going from one stage to the next to the the special stage at the end, and you'd be sort of driving along, and there'd be the competitors actually driving past you in the in the traffic, and you're just like, <gasps> it's so cool, isn't it? It's just it is. yeah, it's it's so cool. And I love that I did when I went freelance. Um, I was lucky enough to do a year following the British Rally Championship around. So I know this is going off on a tangent and i ended up doing videos sort of um with my phone and stuff and actually making my own little videos for, for stuff which was quite quite fun and it's amazing what you can make on a on an iphone in the middle of nowhere just putting clips together but it was it was brilliant so whether it was in um in ireland and you tramp out to the middle of nowhere and stand in the middle of somebody's garden and you know everybody's there just watching you know mark to escorts come past as well as all the brc competitors or then on wales rally gb i just i remember standing up on um, Heron, um, which is the other side of the road from Sweetland in the afternoon, brilliant blue skies 
and you've got the wonderful scene coming down amongst the wind turbines and then they disappear and come back into view and then they sort of come past in front of you. And you, you couldn't have asked for a better spectacle, to be honest, of all sort of you know, these, these drivers coming through there. And yet there's this lovely camaraderie because you've had to walk somewhere. You can, you're not fighting for a position to, to look, but equally there are just enough people there that you know you've all made the same effort you know you're not there for the champagne and canapes it's it's that you're there for a specific reason and it's a beautiful day and you just think this is this is fantastic how lucky am i to to watch this sort of motorsport we always wrap up every episode of intermission that we do with the same quick fire questions let's start with your favorite car movie of recent years right well okay so this is um one of my I don't know how recent you were, you were thinking, but actually it's, do you remember BMW did those adverts and Guy Ritchie, I think directed them, didn't he? And it's, it's the star with, with Madonna. You know, the, yeah. With Madonna and the ETH 905 and, uh, and Clive Owen in the cars. And, and that is just, I, I sort of occasionally sort of remember, Oh, I haven't watched that for a while. I'll go and watch, watch that. And it's, I know, I know it's probably not within the realms, but I think that is is so good. It was so well done, and just the sort of you know the, the drift shots in in town, the the story, the music, the massive slow mo jump. That I mean, I I cannot fathom how <laughs> sort of how that panned out, and it's just it, it's so good because you know the driving is is really really good and has proper bolt on angles and lots of things that we you know subsequently would try and take and, and mimic perhaps. So that's as, as a little sort of vignette, really, of a, of a car film. I think it's it's just brilliant. I did actually, I met uh, Clive Owen once, and um, and said that he was quite he was drunk at the time, um, and um, we were actually on the way out of some um, lose. But yeah, that's it's not really a story though. Kind of stuff. It's, uh, but um, but I had to tell him so. I was like, that's you know, it's, it's probably the, the best thing you've ever done, which is probably not what he wants to hear. But yeah, he seems to. Seems to like it. I'd love all of those films to be remastered in HD or 4K, and particularly as well, my, my co-host Marty, he always says one of his favourite moments in any car video ever is Clive Owen with that M5 sort of right on the lock stops, and he does this <laughs> kind of finger snap. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just, yeah, it's so good. Um, another one, I've... I've yeah, I made a list of a few, but sort of, because I think there are, again, there are bits from different films that I always love. And I know this is not quite fun. Road is another one, which I think from a completely different standpoint, and I know it's not cars, but it's bike, but I kind of bung it all in there. It's just, I, I love, I love road racing and the, the motorbikes and stuff. And TT Closest to Edge is, is great, but Road, I think, is from a, a just that emotional sort of, it's, it's fantastic. I think that's 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 so good. Still watch it on the BBC iPlayer, I think, or something else. So I found it was sort of available again somewhere the other day. So I have to dig that that one out because that one uh, that one's passed me by a little bit. Ah, it's, yeah, it's, it's all that to do with the uh, the Dunlop um, family, um, and uh, Liam Neeson did the voiceover for it actually. And uh, yeah, it's it's thoroughly recommended. Which YouTube channel? Should people be watching other than Carfection, of course? And I think you you might have uh, mentioned it earlier. Um, which one did I mention earlier? VHS rallies. Oh, VHS rallies. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Definitely watch VHS rallies. That's that's um, it's just required. It's it's a complete fantastic rabbit hole of 
um, things. And it's sort of this, I was watching a Kankanen on board from, uh, when was it? The, was it 93? It's snowy in GB and it's just so good. And it's, it's an endless source of, of entertainment. And the, the bits of them there are sort of like old uh, rally cross as well. And the rally sprint, that would be a good thing to bring back, wouldn't it? That would be, that would probably, what WRC can do better, well, a bit of rally sprint would be quite cool. And um, so, yeah, that would be great. Other other things, um, other YouTube channels, I'm slightly obsessed by coffee, which anybody that follows me on Instagram will, will know. And James Hoffman, um, his his channel has grown enormously in the last, last year, but he's somebody that clearly puts a lot of effort into the production value of, um, his film so it's, it's interesting and from a, a visuals perspective very very good indeed there should absolutely be a sort of james hoffman uh, car affection collaboration i think that would collaborators the other day for something and i was i was desperately trying to think if we could make it uh, work and have time so yes it's um we share a birthday i should say uh, yeah he's, he's better than me only by two <laughs> well i think he's probably aged better so and again, outside of car stuff, I think pretty much anything that Brandon Semenuk does, uh, he just seems to have a, a really creative way of making mountain bike films. And plus, he's, a, he's, he's obviously a very good driver as well. He's obviously doing the North American Rally Championship this year um, and doing irritatingly well as well. Um, but he's so stylish on a on a bike. And they did this series of films where it was just the it was sound of the free hub basically sort of and landings and there was no music over the top it was just it was called uh they're called raw it just yeah you look at that and think that's that's pretty good and then stuff yeah Antil films uh Stu thompson doing stuff with danny mccaskill but other sort of because I, I mean martin ashton is um obviously i i think he's just one of the most inspiring people ever so for people that don't know he was um i remember him riding the red cannondale the magura Break, yellow Magura brakes and the headshocks and stuff sort of when I was reading um, Mountain Bike Rider back in the day and stuff like that but, and then he had an accident and he's subsequently gone on but anyway he's he's a fantastic um, person but also Chris Ackrig uh, his films are just he's he's a very different sort of rider to uh, Danny McCaskill um, he's very sort of physical but again just makes really difficult stuff look phenomenally easy so um, yeah he did a good new one the other day actually when he used a POV drone going between that and a GoPro handheld and then just lets it and that was yeah I saw that and thought send it straight to Charlie it's like right we had to do something yeah that's that's going to say when you see that turn up in a car fiction film you pinch the idea from given a huge budget what's the film that you'd love to make this is a really tricky one because with uh, <laughs> you misquote Spider-Man can not you so with huge budget becomes great huge um, but one of the things I love about what we do at Carfection, what we did at Evo and even in between, uh, was the fact that it's, it's kept so small. So I'm, it's a lot of work from my perspective in terms of, I get to plan everything and then I'm not so keen on the appearing in it, but sort of, but you, you're there from, and you're on the scene, you can make quick decisions very quickly so I think if you, you add in too much budget, then the things start to become un, unwieldy and actually you have to involve too many other people. And so what I would like is if more budget would be lovely, purely on the basis of, of being allowed more time to do stuff. So you know you could 
go to a mountain and rather than having five hours to make a film, you have five days um, or five weeks or whatever sort of to, to really that would be the that would be the dream from more budget and to be able to make bigger films as well because obviously you know what we do sort of you know look at stuff like nomad art and i think yeah i'm really really proud of that that sort of that's worked nicely and all the shots are in there and but we couldn't make it really much longer than that without spending a lot more time on it um and keep the quality the same so i think that's it's, i know that's a slightly sort of roundabout answer I, obviously travel would be be great but again that comes back into the time thing i don't think it would be a case of necessarily adding in more complication and and stuff like that and we're very lucky in that that's something i was going to mention before is that the the equipment we have now when i look back at you know where we started when sam and i were starting out and just you know you'd always get a new bit of kit and it's fantastic but sort of things like drones fairly obviously have, have and all the, the gimbals and things you know i remember shots there's a shot at the end of we did a film with the aston martin n430 up on the old military road which uh, occasionally still people mention which is right so the end shot of that which really was it was shot at about half past 11 at night because it was the middle of summer we it was a sort of gimbal shot tracking down the road and but there weren't gimbals at the time or certainly not ones that we could afford um, and, and had the budget for. So Sam did it by bolting it to the bonnet. I can say this now because it's sort of nobody, nobody would bother doing this now, but um, I think he had a long-term golf GTI or something like that. And he bolted it to the bonnet of that or suck it to the bonnet of that. And then turned the, we turned the engine off and he rolled down the road behind me walking up to the, the car. And that was how he got the, the tracking shot smooth enough um, to do it obviously you have to pay the right piece of road so you don't get sort of bumps in the, the camera and stuff like that but um but yeah so it's a long-winded way of saying so obviously the equipment we have now and drones and stuff that can make it look like you've got a helicopter so actually television and film don't really have that much that we can't do which is is, is amazing so again budget doesn't doesn't need to restrict you up to a certain point obviously it's still expensive equipment you know buying a Panasonic S18, whatever is, is is not a cheap bit of kit, but in that relative sort of sphere, we're, we're very lucky with what we have now. Sorry, it's long. It's not a very quick file, is it? Sorry, that's that's fine. It's, it, it's it's a very it's a very good point. Which Hollywood car movie or TV series do you think is worth a reboot? This is tricky because I think the the one TV series I'd like to see kickstart. And come back again just because I have such good memories of it when I was I don't know yeah it's just that theme tune and seeing children completely devoid of any health and safety um, uh, things falling off barrels and things like that I think it's yeah it's what's not to like about that sort of television um, but no I think I would like to see I'd like to see a Cars four um, Cars the movie four because and see what they can come up with next so i think there's plenty of legroom left in that i know it's not quite a reboot but i really love those films actually sort of i've watched them a huge amount because um <laughs> that likes them it's um uh yeah I, I end up watching them quite a lot and but there's some incredible bits in there so sort of like cars cars three the start of that where lightning mcqueen has the crash and they, they, because it's animation, they can get camera angles. You just, you just couldn't, you know, however good our equipment, we just couldn't do them. And the sort of, you know, the slow mo of the car crashing him over the top is, uh, it, stuff like that. I think is is absolutely 
brilliant. So I think I would like to see another another one of those. If you go back in our archives, and this is as much to you, Henry, as it is to our listeners, I did an intermission with a chap called Jay Ward, who works for Pixar, who's their car guru, if you like, and he's the one that ensures all the details are right in the cars and and how they handle and how they respond and they've got the right tyre tread patterns and stuff. And he's a fascinating guy. He's a proper petrol head. It's well worth a listen. I'm definitely going to think of that. I could not get anything out of him about any future car films. One of the the first time I ever went to America uh, was for the Shelby Mustang GT500 launch. And I met Carol Shelby and stuff like that. And it was, it was just the most, if you were going to go to America, sort of, it was mind blowing. I had the full, full experience. But one of the things was we went to a gala charity dinner as uh, for you know, diabetes, I think in Pixar studios. Oh, wow. And so I saw all the sort of, you know, they have these amazing little shed. Each one has a little sort of area that they can create their own, own office space but it might be a sort of princess kingdom or you know whatever or, you know, robin hood's um treehouse or, or whatever it was and that was really cool but they had um sally was outside your full-size sally was outside and it was the it was the world's first showing of cars to move so before the premiere or anything like that this was and most of this i don't know how many people were were at this garland dinner but they got sort of shipped off into a, a screening area or a big sort of screen but because we were forward I think eight of us went into the, the editing cinema screen. So with the wow. desk in the middle of the, yeah, the seats, yeah. like that. John Lasseter came in, um, gave us a, a personal sort of talk about sort of why the movie meant so much to him and sort of talked about sort of like the, uh, obviously the landscapes and stuff with the sort of the, the Cadillac fins in the, in the background and things like that. And then, um, and then we sat there and, and watched the, the film in Pixar in the editing suite. Um, and I fell asleep halfway through because I was so jet lagged and it was so late by that point and it was a dark room and it was warm and the seats were comfier than the average cinema seat. And, uh, um, so yeah, I'm, uh, uh, it's, it's like, I can never tell my son that because <laughs> I would, I would go down so far in his estimation. <laughs> Who should I talk to in a future episode of this podcast? Oh, cameramen or editors. Um, I think that's, that would be, that would be really good. So the, the likes of Charlie and, and Sam and, and Glenn, um, because they will give you obviously the, they will, they will tell you how much of a nightmare people like me are and, and give you all the really juicy stuff, which people in front of the cameras don't want people knowing and all the markups we make and the things they have to cover up and, uh, stuff like that. So, and, and obviously they, yeah, they're the, I think are the real, real talents in, in all of this and actually pulling it together. So that would be, my suggestion the other person if you can get mark higgins because he's obviously done a huge amount of driving work now for various films and, and stuff and he's got, got good stories and he can or, or go around the uh, the manx tt course in a subaru absolutely flat and having a massive tank slap <laughs> exactly yes yeah, yeah that's 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 the one so it's, i was lucky enough to sit next to him actually round uh, the course in a car it was me david evans and somebody else um with the course closed in a in a subaru eye-opening i imagine yes very much so <laughs> <laughs> what's the best way for people to follow what you do uh well carfection uh on on youtube or obviously on through cnet uh which is is where carfection is part of which i think a lot of people don't don't realize and then i'm on instagram is probably the one i use most um i'm not a prolific poster on there but um, i try 
And so, yeah, Instagram at Henry Catchpole. I'm at Henry Catchpole basically on all all media, so Twitter and um, Facebook. Not that I look at it, so please don't send me a message on there because I probably won't respond for months and I'm very sorry about that. I try to respond to people, but um, yeah. <laughs> Instagram and class action. There we go. Thank you very much, Henry Catchpole. Not at all. Thank you very much. It's been, it's been fun.